going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12. Continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone. And our message today is going to be about as universal a message as it gets with what we'll be talking about, an appropriate one uh, for Halloween weekend. But we'll get there in just a minute. Luke 12. Uh, And we're going to take a huge chunk of teaching this morning, a big chunk of chapter 12 that could easily, easily be broken up over three or four weeks worth of uh, sermons because there's a lot here for us to apply. And if we wanted to kind of take our time and zoom in, we could easily, uh, we could easily do that. But as has been kind of my pattern once I've gotten into Luke's teaching here, what I really want to do is try to maintain the point that Luke is making whenever Luke makes a point. And so instead of kind of getting lost in the trees, I want to make sure that we see the forest. And so while we're coming up on one year that we've been in the book of Luke and we're about to make it through close to 12 chapters in one year, we could easily, easily be going at a much slower pace than what we have been uh, doing. And so I know some of you are probably thinking, yeah, we should have spent some more time on this and that. And others of you are like, Wow, well, thank you for not making this a five-year series in the book of Luke, uh, and, uh, and we can keep on going and keep, keep pushing through this. So we're going to take a huge chunk, and instead of this, taking three or four weeks, uh, and so there's going to be some things that I'm just going to let speak for themselves, because they're not super complicated, uh, and we can let Jesus' own teaching and his own words kind of be our own uh, application. And what we're going to look at this morning is one simple word, uh, and an appropriate one here just a couple of days before Halloween. We are going to look at fear. Fear. Now, fear is one of those core emotions that we have as humans. That and love are likely the two most motivating emotions that kind of rise from the core of who we are, that, 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 that drive us. Obviously, it drives the economy uh, this time of year, uh, at least that and uh, judging by my trip to Walmart yesterday, that and chocolate drive the economy this, this time of year, but uh, it's not just, uh, it's not just uh, Halloween and haunted houses that, uh, that, that base their entire industry and what they do around fear. There's all kinds of ways that fear kind of works its way into, uh, into our lives. Somewhere along the way, our news agencies uh, learned that fear was a far more motivating factor for people to tune in or to read what they had to say than information. And so they got out of the information business and they got into the fear business. And that is what drives the vast majority of our uh, news sources that are out there. Uh, they, they, the, 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 our news feeds have, uh, have, have moved from carefully curated streams of, of information to a constant narrative of all the things that they believe should scare you. And if you are scared, then that means you will be a customer because you will want some more information. You can, uh, you can also look no further than, uh, than the world of politics. If you can make them a customer in the news agency, you can make them a voter uh, in the political uh, the, the, the political realm. Maybe the oldest political strategy that exists is to build a campaign on fear. If you can make people scared and then position yourself or your, uh, your, your party as the salvation from that fear, then you too can become president. 
That's how that works. That's how you get the vote. So the next time you wonder, how in the world did that guy or that girl get elected? Just ask the question, what were people afraid of? And how did this person make them feel safer about that thing? That's how they got elected. You can agree or disagree, but that's probably the strategy that went into place. And you'll have your answer for how America has ended up where we are. And while I'd love to talk about the manipulation of our news agencies or a vast, all kinds of other different industries or uh, talk about how bad politics is um, or even just talk about the latest horror movie that's out there, while I'd love to talk about all those things as it relates to fear, I'd be less than honest if I did not point out that the church may be the biggest broker in fear that there is. The church in the history of, uh, of, of, of Christianity has capitalized on fear and used fear to its end at almost every turn. From, from using fear to convince people of their need for God to the use of fear to control minds and manipulate narratives to the use of fear as a source of fundraising for the church. October 31st is Halloween. It's also, for, for the, the, the nerdier of you here in the room, it's also Reformation Day. Uh, and this is where uh, many folks will celebrate uh, Martin Luther and his nailing of the 95 Theses to the, the, the church door in, in Germany. And what drove Luther to do this, to reform the church, is primarily the practice of indulgences, which was the use of fear by the Catholic Church in order to uh, gain money from people to say, your relative, someone that you care about is stuck in purgatory or is in need of an extra boost from the saints, and if you give enough money, we, the church, will pray for those people, and we will get money. So they used, uh, they used the fear in order to gain money, in order to gain a, a way into people's uh, lives. But let's not pretend that all this stopped in the 1500s. Uh, spend 10 minutes on Twitter today, and you'll see that things have not changed all that much. One of the surest ways to build a platform in our Christian ease culture of the day, one of the surest ways to raise some money, one of the surest ways to grow a church is to traffic in the currency of fear. If you can do that, you will gain a hearing from many, many people. But we don't need to go to social media. We don't need to go to a news agency. We don't need to go to a political rally. And frankly, we don't even need to go to church to understand how fear works. The truth is, we don't have to go anywhere to understand fear. All we have to do is be honest with ourselves. We know how fear works, or at the very least, we know the, the presence of fear because we all experience it. Now, we all deal with it differently. There's different ways in which, once that fear is inside of us, what happens over the next uh, as we respond to it, for, for some it's anxiety and panic attacks, for others it's anger and control, and a thousand other different things that, that our minds and our bodies do in response to fear. So what do we do with this central emotion that is universal to the human experience, that is universal to our lives? What does God tell us to do? How does Satan try to take this thing, fear, and use it as one of his primary weapons? And we'll answer some of that this morning. But before we go too far, I want to I give a little bit of a disclaimer here. I am no psychologist. 
I am not a doctor. I am not a counselor. So I am not here to, to diagnose or to dismiss what so many of us in this room have dealt with and is only increasing by the day in our society, specifically anxiety, which is a mental and physical reaction to the very real emotion of fear. So I'm not here to pretend that we can talk through all the ins and outs and how all of this works and, and, and can't give a full theological uh, you know, treatise on uh, on the way that, that anxiety works and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not trying to answer all those questions. So let me set that expe- expectation up front. And so while I'm not any of those things, I am, however, a pastor. And so I can't answer everything, but I do think the Bible speaks to us here, specifically in our text today. And if you've struggled with an anxiety, my guess is you've read parts of this text today, maybe over and over and over, and probably memorized some of this stuff. And so we want to talk about how God uses that, what Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage. I think we'd be wise to listen and understand how the Bible looks at fear. So I won't be anywhere close to exhaustive this morning. Uh, I won't won't be anywhere close to, to, to explaining all the ins and outs and answering all of your questions. But I do believe we have some things to learn. So here's the goal. Here's the goal. To give us insight into one way. So I, 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 am, I am setting expectations here this morning. To give us insight into one way that Satan takes our fears and uses them to draw attention to anything but God. That's what I want to do this morning. That's my goal is to do that. And then for us to understand that fear itself is not our biggest problem. But instead, it's learning how to fear rightly. That is the goal. So let's, 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 let's read here. And the pattern that we're going to see this morning is Jesus is going to state the principle. He's going to apply the principle. And then he's going to illustrate the principle. And then he's going to come back in and he's going to summarize all of it. All right? Most of us probably only know the summary portion. We don't know the first part of it, right? But this is how we're going to do this. State the principle, apply the principle, illustrate the principle, and then summarize all of it. So Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus is speaking. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not sparrows, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. We'll stop right there. This is the principal part of Jesus' talk. Jesus moves from a critique of the Pharisees, this is what we looked at last week, uh, to, to this teaching where it says that thousands have gathered to hear him. Speak, And we're not told specifically what brought these thousands of people together, no specific occasion, no specific place. But some of what we read here is very, very similar to what we read in the Sermon on the Mount. So again, we have Jesus teaching what appears to be kind of his go-to sermon, or at least one of his go-to lessons that he wants to teach. He probably taught this many, many times with different nuances, depending on the time that it got Recorded, and he is doing this to explain who and what he is. 
And so this is one of those, those messages that just kind of keeps coming up. And so it looks a little bit different, and the, the occasion's a little bit different in Matthew whenever you read a similar passage in Matthew, but it's the same teaching. And what's interesting about this little section we just read is that it, that, that it contains the single most repeated command in all of Scripture. And it's not even close. The single most repeated command in all of Scripture is, do not be afraid. Over 300 times we are told in Scripture, do not be afraid. We are told that over and over and over. And, and, and right off the bat, I have to say this to, to, to you fearful people in the room. Uh, that has to be a comfort. That has to be a comfort to you. That God would be that intentional about speaking to this core emotion that is so common in your life. And the fact that he says it that many times tells us something else. It tells us that, that, that this idea of, uh, of, of being fearful is not just like some random thing that a few people struggle with. It tells us that it is core to who we are. And so what I know, even though everyone in this room may not know this or even believe this, is that there are not some fearful people in this room. There are not some people in this room who struggle with fear. There are not some people in this room who are the nervous Nellies. There are not some people in this room who are the ones that specifically are struggling and dealing with this. Here's what I know. We all deal with this. We all struggle with this. None of us are alone. And the hard thing is that for so many who struggle with fear in a way that kind of manifests it in a way that is, that is seen and obvious to people is that they will assume that that means that they are alone in their suffering and that others do not suffer or fear in the same way that they do. They have more fear than the average person. And that is just not correct. We all fear. Now, we all process it in very different ways depending on uh, a thousand different factors. But fear is there. And just because you can't see that someone else is dealing with fear doesn't mean that they're not. We are all that, dealing with that. At our core, we are fearful people. So when God tells us over and over and over and over again, don't be afraid, that should give us some insight into the nature of who God is. That should give us some insight into the way that God sees us, that he is concerned about us and with us, that he has not left us on our own to sort through this mess that, that, that our hearts and that this world thrust on us, but he is right there beside us, right in the midst of our fears. He has not left us. He is right there saying over and over and over again, like a good parent, don't be scared. I'm right here. And so it can be easy to read commands in scripture like don't be afraid. And the assumption can be that, all right, if it says don't be afraid and yet I have fear, then that means that I am sinning and God is angry with me when I am afraid. I don't think that that's correct. I think what the Bible is teaching us is that we have fear and he is saying don't be afraid, not as a reprimand, but as a comfort. And he is saying, I am right here with you in the midst of this. He's not saying don't have fears. 
He's saying, I'm right here in the midst of your fears. And so those fears don't have to rule you. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But I think that's an important note for us this morning. When he says, don't be afraid, I'm right here. That is not directed at some abstract, nameless humanity. But it's directed right at us. Right to you. Don't be afraid. The next thing that's interesting in this little section is that this is a complete paradox that he gives us. It is so hard to apply this teaching because this teaching is kind of confusing. Because in verse 4 he says, do not fear. And then in verse 5 he tells us three different times to fear. And then in verse 7 he comes back and he says, fear not. What are you trying to tell me, Jesus? Don't be afraid. Be afraid. Don't be afraid. He goes back and forth between those. And, 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 and in doing so, we kind of get lost a little bit in, what is it that he wants for me? Am I supposed to have fear? Am I not supposed to have fear? What does it look like to live as a faithful Christian and a faithful follower of Jesus? So which one is it? Are we to be a people with or without fear? You see, Jesus knows that simply wishing for or commanding fear to go away won't make it so. This is what's so hard. You can't, he can't just say, he knows he can't just say, don't be scared, and you'll be like, got it, not scared. That's not how fear works. That's not how how, how it works. You can't just say, I am going to push this away. Fear is not a well-trained pet. It is a wild animal that has the potential to devour us. So Jesus doesn't doesn't tell us to, to stop, but to redirect and to reconsider the way fear works in our life. And then Jesus says, the worst that man can do is kill you. And that that is, in the scheme of things, pretty minor compared to the authority that God has. Like, thanks, Jesus. That's super comforting. Like, the worst that can happen is they can kill me. That's what I'm afraid of. Like, that, that's the thing that scares me. How is that a comfort to me, Jesus? I, don't, I mean, I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem very minor to me. Death seems like a big deal. In fact, most of our fears on some level revolve around death in some form or fashion. And Jesus wants to teach us a principle that will help us Dealing with our fears. And it's this. Don't spend your life worried about the wrong things. Don't spend your life focused and drawing your attention at all times to the wrong things. It's not that things shouldn't give us fear. But when you are afraid of the wrong things, you end up being captive to that fear. Our perspective has to raise from the very temporary things of this world. And this is why he's talking about killing the body. Because this body, even though it is what we've got, is a very temporary thing. And he's saying the perspective that you have has got to raise from the temporary things of this world to something that is far more transcendent than that. And now hear me, I'm not saying, I am not saying that Jesus is saying our fears aren't valid. That is not what I'm saying. Jesus never invalidates our fears. I'm saying that there are much bigger things for us to be afraid of. 
And Jesus doesn't mince any words here. He says that God himself is the one whom we should fear. And I'll be honest, the, the, the quick kind of like knee-jerk response to that, like the teaching that many of us have heard our whole, whole lives is like, oh, that word fear, that means like awe. Like you should just be in reverence of who God is. I think it means fear. Like I think you should be scared of what he can do and the level of authority that he has. But notice how Jesus ends here in this little section. He doesn't say, don't fear other things. So long as you go with me, all will be fine. He doesn't say that. He says, he says fear not. Why should we not be afraid? Because God has not forgotten you. That is what he grounds that instruction in. Fear not. Why? Because you have not been forgotten. Just a second ago, I said that, that God repeats the phrase to us, fear not. But the reason given, God never says, fear not, fear not. It's all going to be all right. Right? That's what we tell our kids, right? When they have a nightmare and they wake up in the middle of the night, fear not. It's all going to be okay. Jesus does not say that. What he says is, fear not. I'm right here. And that is a different message. That is a different thing for us to know. I'm right here and I've not forgotten you. And that is important because Satan will try to convince you that if things have gone sideways, if something has scared you, if the world has become too much for you, then that means God has forgotten you. That is the lie that he will feed you. And if God has forgotten you, then what kind of God is he? Or is he God at all? This is the lie that we will be told to believe. Do you see how this works? For so many of us, this is where our spiritual anxieties come from. We thought all would be well. And then they're not. But that was never the promise. The promise is that even if things go as bad as they could, i.e. they kill the body, God is still right there with you. You say, well, that's not super helpful for me. I still have this problem of being afraid. Uh, if they can still kill my body, then I'm still scared. That's how this works. But Jesus' instruction here teaches us that an eternal perspective changes things. And a fear of God changes things. The scary thing may still be there, but it is not the ultimate thing. And you don't have to be ruled by whatever that thing is in your life. Why? Because he has not forgotten you. So that's the principle, all right? That's the principle. Now we're going to see uh, the application, and it's just going to be a short little spot because it, then he's going to illustrate it, which I think will be uh, a little more helpful than the application. But that's the principle, that God has not forgotten us. Therefore, we should not be afraid of the things that the world has for us. And that an eternal perspective that, that we should fear the wrath, power, and authority of God over our eternal lives is far more important than whatever can happen to us in this world. So don't fear the wrong things. That's the principle. Now the application. Luke 12, verse 8. 
And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will all will the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then they bring and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. It's kind of a hodgepodge of sentences there. Like, how do those all fit together? How do those all uh, work? And again, I could easily give at least two, probably three sermons from this one passage uh, alone, this one piece of text. And there are few verses that will scare the living daylight out of Christians than that one. When you hear about an unforgivable sin, that there's something out there that God can't or won't forgive. And I'd love to spend a whole sermon on that. I'd love to spend forever talking about that. But I think we'd lose the point that Jesus is making here, so I'm not going to. But I have done a whole sermon on that before. And so what I will do is I will link that in our podcast notes whenever that goes up, hopefully tomorrow. I will link that. And so if you have questions about the, the, the unforgivable sin, if you want to know what that is and what Jesus is talking about, then you can go and you can take a listen to that uh, in your free time this week when you're driving around or when you're out trick-or-treating or whatever. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can listen to that. So I have done a sermon on that, and, and we'll let... We'll let that one kind of stand for uh, my teaching there. But the application then of this idea of, of fear God is that our lives will, ref, will reflect that fear. So, so Jesus is saying the most important thing for us is to fear God. And if we do so, then our lives will reflect that truth about us. This is what uh, the acknowledging him before others is all about. That, that our simple confession of our faith before others is going to be driven, at least in part, by a fear of who God is and what he can do to us in our sin and our rebellion. But if you don't do that, if you won't acknowledge others, then you are effectively living for the here and now, for this world, and you have not properly learned the fear of God. And then Jesus says, if you're worried about how and when to do that, if you don't know what to say, if you don't know what it looks like to stand up and acknowledge God before others, just open your mouth and the Spirit will lead you. That's what he says. Don't be worried about that. Then you can do that. The Spirit will take care of you and what you need to do. Why? Because he has not forgotten you. So this is what he's saying. If you fear God, that will be reflected in the way that you live. You'll speak of me before others. And then as you speak of me before others, the Spirit will empower you. So don't be afraid of those that can kill you. Don't be afraid to speak up in front of authorities who can kill you. And don't be worried that you're going to get it wrong. The Spirit will empower you. All right, so that's a quick and crude application, but I've got a lot more for us to go. So I'm going to keep on going because I think Jesus will now illustrate this point in the next two sections that we have here in chapter 12. So we're going to see the illustration here uh, in two different ways. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Super helpful crowd jumping in there like, Hey, I am in the middle of teaching about being scared about the power of God, and you want to know if you can get your inheritance that you're owed. Talk about worrying about the wrong things, right? 
That's basically going to be the application that Jesus is going to give here uh, in two different ways. But now whether this is like a, a formal sermon or if this is a more informal, they're kind of gathered around sitting on some rocks, eating whatever they're eating and like doing their thing. Like, I, I don't know exactly what this looks like. My guess is he's not up there with the face mic and it's like super formal like this. It's probably more informal. But this is the question that gets thrown out there. And Jesus is like, thanks for asking that question because it actually illustrates my point nicely. You fool. It's uh, actually what he's going to say. Luke 12, 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brothers to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge uh, or arbitrator over you. This is not saying that Jesus isn't judge. We've got plenty of verses that will say that. It's saying that Jesus is like, I'm a teacher here. I am not here dealing with these legal matters. You take this up before the courts. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Super convenient since we talked about the budget this morning. This is the passage that we're on. Uh, so we'll spend some time. No, I'm just kidding. That's not... A, That is an application that we can make out of this, but that's not the main application that we're going to do. Um, He says, life doesn't consist out of the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So Jesus, I told you, he says, he says fool, calls calls him a fool. Uh, This is the application that that he gives here. And Jesus says, "Don't, don't ask me about this. You completely missed the point of what I'm trying to say. I've got no dog in this fight, but since you're asking, let me apply the principle that I've been teaching today. And, 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 and he warns them against coveting. He warns them against wanting too much stuff and about storing up too much stuff and having too much possessions and finding your worth in possessions. Like I said, easy sermon right there that we could spend our time on. The parable is straightforward. A man's crops have a banner year, and this guy's feeling pretty good about himself. He's feeling pretty in control. His food needs are taken care of. He can just store it all. He's got so much that he's he's got so much left over, he can build even bigger barns to store all of it, and he's free to live life carefree however he wants. And Jesus warns him that while you're Your earthly life may be carefree. There is far more that you should be concerned about. That this life is fleeting and temporary. And no matter how much security, how much control, how much of this life you seem to have figured out, it won't last forever. Do you see what happens? This guy's core fear of of producing enough grain and having enough food has been eliminated. And so he's carefree. Why? He has no fears. And Jesus is saying, you have, you, you have completely missed the point here. You should have fears. You should be worried about the things that matter. You're living life completely carefree because you think your biggest fear has been solved and you're good to go. But your biggest fear should be about God and what he will demand of you on the day that you die. Not whether or not you're going to have food next month or next year, or tomorrow. 
There are bigger things to be concerned about because that stuff won't last forever. So he's just applying the teaching that he's just given them. This man was able to relax, to feel a, a, a fearless life, not because he was brave, but because he had had those fears removed. That core fear had been eliminated. And D- Jesus wants to teach him that that fear was rooted in a temporary world and a temporary problem. And there are far more permanent things to be concerned with. And listen, this is how Satan uses fear. At least one way. This is how Satan uses fear. He takes our fears and he uses them to draw attention from where it's supposed to be. He takes a good, natural, reasonable response, fear, the, 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 the need of food and the need to be able to gather and provide for yourself and for your family. That is a good, legitimate fear. And Satan will turn that then into a distraction. And if he can make it into an ultimate distraction, he will do that. I'm curious, how many of you guys like haunted houses? Like, show of hands, how many people like haunted houses? All right, so there's just a few of you. How many people will tolerate haunted houses, but you don't really, like, like them? And how many people think people that go to haunted houses are stupid? Like, that's most of you. All right. So, so like, it's interesting to me the way that haunted houses work and, and, and the psychology that goes behind all of that. I'll just tell you right now, if you want to do a very interesting Bible study, if you really want to kind of dig into uh, psychology and you want to dig into your own theology of things, if you want to do a study on the theology of fear more than just like reading these verses, it is fascinating what all you can get into and some of the things that you can talk about. And if you want to talk about the way fear works within haunted houses, it gives us a good idea of how Satan will use fear in our lives. I like Halloween. We have fun with Halloween at our house, but haunted houses are not my thing. Uh, Horror movies are not my, my thing either. But do you know the primary tactic of haunted houses that they use to scare you? It isn't gore. It isn't strobe lights. It isn't like like loud noises, all of, those things, all of those things are part of what they're trying to do. But the primary thing that they use to scare you is distraction, misdirection. If they can get you to look at something else, then that means you are prime to be scared. You are, that's like, if, if any of y'all are going to Frightmare, like if you're going, my guess is, the moment that you are paying attention to something else, you need to be ready for something over here to come out and scare you, right? This is how haunted houses work. It's all based on misdirection. I was watching a show this week. I don't know if you guys, have you guys seen those shows that are like the, the Christmas light fights and the Halloween, like, like where they decorate their yards and stuff like that? I was watching this last week and there was one where they decorated their yard crazy for Halloween, built a haunted house in their front yard. Uh, and, and the way that, that they had one spot where there was a scare, and the way that it worked is you come around a corner, and there's this long hallway, and there's a phone at the end of the hallway, right? And the phone just starts ringing whenever you walk into the hallway. 
It doesn't tell you what to do, but the assumption is you're supposed to walk down this long hallway and answer the phone. And so what happens is they come around the corner, and he's walking down this hallway. And as he's focused on this phone, a picture right here drops, and like somebody's head sticks out. And in, in, in what I, I tried my best to find the video, but I think it's still copyrighted, and I couldn't get it. Um, but the dude hits the floor whenever the, the picture drops because he's focused on the phone. He's not focused on the picture that's right here. It's all about misdirection. That is the whole point. And this is exactly how Satan works in our lives too. He uses our fears as distractions from the things that matter. He takes the things that this world puts in front of us, legitimate fears, no sin in being afraid, our real fears, and then he heightens the intensity of those fears. They do it in a haunted house with strobe lights and loud noises. Satan does it in real life with all kinds of other things, but he heightens that fear. He gets it up, gets it bigger. He gets us paying attention to it, and it is the only thing that we can pay attention to at some point. Because so much is kind of getting poured into us and into our brains, and that's all we can see. And when that happens, when that happens, Satan is doing exactly what he's trying to do. You see, here's the thing that you need to remember. Satan doesn't need you to love him or worship him. If he, if, if, if he gets that, then, then that's fine. But that's not what he needs. He just needs to distract you from the thing that matters most. He just needs to distract you. And if he can take your fears and use that as a distraction, man, he will do that. You miss a few paychecks, you get a bad diagnosis, a broken relationship, a political scene that you've bought in to the fears that have been pressed and pushed on you. He's happy to let those things be a distraction. Or a nice raise, a clean bill of health, a new relationship. Your political party's in power and is is rolling in Washington. Everything feels like it's going great. That works too. Because that's still playing on your fear, whether it's it's absolving your fear, like the guy here in, uh, in, in, in Luke 12 who builds his bigger barns, like his fears are all gone. And so if the, the goal is to don't be afraid, then this guy's won. Jesus should be happy with him, but Jesus calls him a fool. So if he can absolve your fears and you're happy and contented and not paying attention to what matters, that works. Or if he can heighten your fears and make you focus on those fears and not paying attention to what really matters, that works too. Both of those are just fine. This is how he works. Distraction and misdirection. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Don't look at the the magician's trick and the sleight of hand. Don't see any of that stuff. Just be afraid. Or don't be afraid. But just focus on those things. This is how he works. I'm convinced that misdirection might be the most underappreciated tool that Satan has in his bag. 
And this is Jesus' warning. Don't fall for the tricks. Don't fall for the shiny thing over here. Don't fall for the scary thing over here. They are temporary. And then Jesus is going to give us some more words of encouragement. And instead of breaking them down verse by verse and line by line, I want to read them as a whole because I think they carry a lot of power if you just listen to what Jesus says whenever he says this. And if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with worry, if you struggle with fear at a level that it always seems to be kind of like present and right in front of you, you probably know these verses. These are the go-tos. But listen to what he says now in the context of his teaching here and see if we can apply this in an even deeper and richer way. Luke 12, 22. And he says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. So Jesus comforts us. And he says... I know you're scared. I know you have fears. I know you're afraid. I know you're anxious. I know you have all of these things. God does too. He has not forgotten you. So Jesus draws our hearts and our minds away from the things that surround us and scare us and draws them upward to the thing that matters most. He tells us, warns us, encourages us, and pleads with us, worry about the things that matter, not the temporary things. Don't worry about the wrong things. Fear is not a sin, neither is our physical and and, and mental response to that fear. But fear can teach us about our hearts. It can teach us about what we value. And it can teach us about who we trust. So while it may not be a sin, it certainly is a teacher. And we would do well to listen to it. Not listen to it in the lies that the fears tell us. But in what the fears are telling us about who we are. 
And we would do well to listen to Jesus to then speak back to those fears and say, no, this is not what is true. Because here's what I know about God and I'm far more fearful of him than I, are, than I am of you, thing that I'm scared of. From the very beginning, this is how Satan works. He asks Eve, did God really say? And then he tells her, God is holding out on you. God is holding out on you. You can't eat that fruit because if you eat that fruit, you will know something. If you eat this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Satan is in the garden planting seeds of fear and doubt in Eve's mind. And the fear of not knowing something, the fear of being kept away from something, that fear is what led to the fall. This is how Satan works. Capitalize on the fear. What should have happened is Eve and Adam should have said, no, 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 no. God is good. Let me speak truth back to the lie behind that fear. Let me speak truth back to the lie and let's, let's, let, let's, let's, let's ease this fear that you've planted in my heart and in my mind. That's not what happened and now we deal with the consequences of all of that. But this is still the pattern. This is still what Jesus is saying. He's saying, no, there are bigger things than the things you are afraid of. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Just like Jesus said where we started this morning, that even whenever the fears get the best of us, even whenever the fears do push us to a place of sin, he has not forgotten us. Even in our sin and our unrighteousness, he has not left us. He has come to the earth to redeem us and to redeem all of that. And there will be a place where it, where, 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 as it says in 1 John, where perfect love will cast out all fear. There will be a day whenever we will know what it means to truly be fearless, at least as it pertains to these things that, that, that come after our heart. And here's the cool thing. Not only will we be fearless to all these temporary things that captivate our hearts so easily now, we will stand before a holy God and we will still be fearless. The one thing that should scare us, we won't be afraid of. Why? Not because we've earned our way to that place, but because of the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus covers us so that we can approach the throne, so that we can, what we're going to do here in just a minute, we can worship and we can pray and we can, we can come to, to God and we can say, God, I have these fears and I've done this and I've done that and I, I am this type of person and I am a sinner and I deserve your wrath and I understand that Jesus says I should fear you because I deserve that wrath. And so I come and I plead the blood of Jesus. And in that moment, those fears can be resolved. 
because he has made it safe for us. And that perfect love of our Father drives out all fear. That is the gospel, to make us fearless. Even fearless in the face of things that should frighten us. Because the blood of Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, even as I say these words and I speak on a topic like this, I know that there are so many that hear this and say, yeah, but, yeah, but, but, but here's what I've got. Yeah, here's the thing that I'm dealing with. And, or, or, or there are so many others that will hear this and they will, they, they will condemn themselves because fear is such a very present part of their lives. And even still, there are others that will hear this and they will say, ah, not a thing for me. I'm not scared of nothing. Father, I pray that you would remove all of those responses to this message. And we would hear the Holy Spirit speak and that we would be drawn to exactly what Jesus says. That we would, that we would fear you rightly for what you can do to us and by all rights should do to us. But that in the same breath, we would do exactly what Jesus says and we would fear not. And we wouldn't get caught up in all the things of this world that scare us. That our hearts and our minds will be elevated, lifted, and focused on you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.